Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, to you we cry. We are dependent upon you. We need you. And Father, we need your work here today. So Father, we ask that your spirit would use your word to conform us into the image of Christ. Lord, keep us from leaving here unchanged. May we heed your word and obey it. So Lord, we commit this time to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now in our uh, fifth week of our study through Deuteronomy. And up to this point, we have been going very quickly and trying to cover a lot of territory uh, since we only have 12 weeks to go through this entire book. Uh, But today what we'll do is slow down a little bit and focus in on just seven verses in chapter 17 and hopefully take a breath uh, before we take some more large steps forward. These seven verses in chapter 17 are called by some the law of the king, for they are laws and regulations for uh, Israel's king when they come into the land. And up to this point, what we have looked at in the book of Deuteronomy, that first week we looked at the preamble. And the preamble is where uh, the main characters are introduced. We have the great king Yahweh uh, portrayed as the suzerain, the great king. And then we have his people Israel, those vassal people who were to give loyalty and devotion to the great king. That was basically the first five verses of the book of Deuteronomy. From there, all the way through chapters, uh, chapter 4 is the historical prologue. And you remember, the historical prologue is where the great king lays out all of his dealings with his people. And the point of that is to motivate them to faithfulness in the covenant. And we looked at those five memories. And then what we got into then are the general stipulations of chapters 5 through 11. The Ten Commandments there are umbrella statements, over, uh, overview statements, Uh, of what God demands. And those get worked out later in the specific stipulations. And what we saw in the general stipulations of chapters 5 through 11 is that the main thing is loyalty to the Lord, and Deuteronomy calls that love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And what we're coming to now, which we started last week, are the specific stipulations, the specific obligations. These are specific requirements, whereas Chapters 5 through 11 is a general exhortation to loyalty. These commands and laws in chapters 12 through 26 detail for Israel how does that loyalty work its way out in your daily life. And so that's what we've been considering. And we started off last week in chapter 12. And the way we've kind of been framing this is looking at the goodness of God in the law. Because remember, flourishing dies without boundaries. He has given us rules and commands for our benefit because as we obey him, we're doing what we were designed to do and we are the more happy and satisfied and joyful as we do that. Today we're continuing that. We're still in the specific stipulations and we are now coming to the law of the king. So what we'll be examining today then are five statements concerning the kingship of Israel five statements of the kingship of Israel. So let's jump in and let's look at our first statement of the kingship. The first one is that it was expected. And we see this in verse 14. Notice with me, Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, 
and you possess it and dwell in it, then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. So there was this expectation and that there would be a time Israel would settle in the land and they would look around at all the nations and they would want to set a king over them. Perhaps they were becoming bored with the Lord's blessings and putting them there. But regardless, whatever their motivations are, they would look around and want to be like those around them. And you would see a common feature in each of these nations. They would all have this single ruler who was able to muster the, the forces of battle. They would uh, go in and they would demonstrate the glory of their respective kingdoms. And they would do this through their wealthy estate and oftentimes through their powerful entourage. A king was someone who could, the nation could look to to lead them in battle, to, to guide them and to provide justice for them. Kings were glorious in that day. They inspired the awe of the people. And if one was particular mighty, particularly mighty, he could strike fear in the rest of the nations around them. And what that does is his reputation then spills over to the people. If you have a really glorious king, the rest of the people rise uh, as well. Their reputation rises as well, as well. Excuse me. And these things all seem great. But what's the problem? As we get to this, Israel already had a king. His name was Yahweh. And as we look through scripture, the Lord is very clear about his relationship to the world in general and specifically to Israel. Listen to just a few passages concerning this. Exodus 15:17 to 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Here he is pictured as the king in his sanctuary, in the tabernacle. He was king over Israel. Notice in our book currently, Deuteronomy 33, 2-5, it's speaking of the time when he came down to Sinai. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Thus, the Lord became king in Jeshurun. That's another uh, title for Israel. And it says, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. And so what we're seeing there is when the Lord came down at Sinai, it's picturing it as God's enthronement in Israel. He was king in Israel. If you go to uh, Psalms 93 on to Psalm uh, 99, you have these enthronement psalms that describe the Lord as king. They, uh, a refrain that's repeated throughout those psalms is, the Lord reigns, or the Lord is king. Let me just read uh, one of these. Psalm 93, 1-2. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And if you look at Psalm 95, Psalm 96, Psalm 97, 
98 and 99, all of these describe the Lord as the great king over all the universe and specifically in Israel. Now, despite the fact that Yahweh was Israel's king, it wasn't actually wrong for them to desire a king. The desire in and of itself was not wrong. And the way we know this is because if we look throughout the narrative of the Old Testament up to this point, right, we're in the fifth book, and so if we look at the previous four books, we see that there was already a theme developing that God was going to set a king over Israel. There are three uh, main passages that we go to for this. First off, he told Abraham that kings would come from him back when he was giving him the Abrahamic covenant. You can look that up in Genesis 17, 6 and verse 16. Secondly, Jacob prophesied that the scepter, a scepter is something that kings hold. It demonstrates their authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's Genesis 49.10. And then one more, God made the wicked prophet Balaam prophesy this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. And that's Numbers 24, 17 to 19. So God already had it in his mind to appoint a king over Israel. He already had his plans for the Messiah to rule and to reign. And therefore, he expected the time would come when Israel would desire a king and to be like all the other nations. So this was expected. And that leads us then to the second statement concerning the kingship of Israel, which was, it was permitted. So God permits this. He allows this. Notice verse 15, the first part of it. You may indeed set a king over you. What's interesting is here, he's not commanding it, he's not condemning it, but he is allowing the appointment of a king over them. And this is not a begrudging permission, but it's a gracious one. If you remember back in the garden, God told Adam, you may surely eat of all the trees of the garden, right? That surely eat, we have that same grammatical construction here. You may surely set a king over you. So God expected and he permitted the kingship in Israel because he already had his plans and because he already knew the heart of the Israelites that they would want this, that they would desire to be like the other nations. And so you have this interesting dynamic where God is using even the sinful inclinations of humans to accomplish his preordained plan. Now, despite his... Uh, allowing them to have this king, God's not going to just let them decide on their own what they would have in a king. He's going to give them some regulations. He's going to set out what he desires for a king. And you can imagine easily that if it was left up to them, what would they base their decisions on? What do they want in a king? Well, they would look around the nations first off, so you have peer pressure kind of, and you would say, oh, I like that one. Let's have a king like him. Or 
your own sinful desires. What is it that you think a king can get for you? What is it that a king can do for you? And so God's not going to let them, uh, not going to leave it up to them. He is going to set out his specific guidelines because God doesn't want Israel to be like the other nations. He specifically called them out of Egypt to be a holy people, to be a people separate and holy to God. And so this leads us to the third statement. It had limitations. It had limitations. Notice 15b through 17. And for the first limitation that we'll see is that the king must be God's choice. It wasn't to be primarily the people's choice. It was to be God's choice. Notice 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. That's the first limitation. They weren't to choose a king based on their own evaluation, but they were to leave it to the Lord to provide the choice. Now, as we keep going throughout these limitations, what we'll see is that Israel still had a part to play in choosing the king because otherwise God could just say, all right, here's your king and that's it. But he gives them more guidelines and they were to choose their king based on these guidelines. So the second limitation is that the king must be an Israelite. He couldn't be a foreigner. Notice the last part of verse 15. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So they were not allowed to simply look at and value someone's military acumen or their wealth or their power. God had set Israel apart as a holy nation, separate and different from the other nations. And you can imagine setting a king over them who is not an Israelite is essentially nullifying the very purpose of Israel because they were supposed to be separate and different. Further, if you think about it, a king not from among their brothers, right, couldn't be assumed to have their own priorities in mind. He could have his own priorities. And so just consider with me for, uh, as an illustration. If we told all of our elders here, uh, you know what? We don't actually want you as elders anymore, so goodbye. What we'll do is we know that there's that TI plant coming in, and uh, what we're going to do is get all the top executives from, from that new TI plant that's coming in because they obviously know how to run a business, right? And, you know, if they come in, maybe they can grow our church. Maybe they can incentivize the people to give more money. And who knows, maybe we will get this new building out of the deal. Well, what's the problem? Well, there's pretty much everything is wrong with that, right? But uh, let's just consider a few. There's at least three things wrong with that. You have the, you're looking for the wrong qualities in the leader. The Bible lays out very explicitly what are the character qualities of an elder. They must be a Christian. They must be mature. You have the wrong goals, right? It's not about numbers, money, or buildings, but it's about growing in faithfulness and obedience to God. And you have the wrong methods of getting to those goals. Because you're basing it not on, are they Christians? Right? Because an elder must have God's priorities. And if you bring in from the outside, you don't necessarily have those. And this last problem that we just mentioned, the wrong methods, that leads us now to our next limitation. And we see that our third limitation here is that the king must not rely on the things of the world. 
Now there's a funny way of summarizing uh, these limitations here, uh, the things of the world. Perhaps you've heard of it, but the king was supposed to stay away from gold, gals, and giddy-up, right? <laughs> so gold, you've got money, and you've got gals, stay away from the wives, and then, or multiple wives, and then uh, the giddy-up, right, the horses. So let's take a look at each of these. So the first thing that the king must not acquire many of are the horses. Notice Deuteronomy 17, 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Horses were a strong military asset, especially if they were hooked up to chariots. Uh, that would be a strong military. But that's not what the king was supposed to rely upon. He's not supposed to rely on wives, Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And there's obviously sort of the sexual temptation of wanting to multiply your wives, but perhaps the temptation more in view here is in multiplying these foreign wives in alliances made with foreign powers. It was a quite common practice in that day. It would solidify the relationship between two nations if a wife was included in the process. And so multiplying wives was essentially the same as multiplying your uh, international alliances and building that up. And what's interesting is that our verse gives a reason for why he is not to do this. It gives a reason for the prohibition, lest his heart be turned away. And so the assumption is that the foreign wives would have foreign gods and foreign practices. And I think this is a principle that we can uh, consider today, and it, I think it's timeless, but it's this. Those whom we set our affections upon have the unique ability to draw us into conformity to their own interests and priorities. And this can be for good or for ill, but you think about it. Think about many of us have been uh, influenced greatly by popular preachers. We think of John MacArthur, we think of R.C. Sproul, we think of others, because they're out there on YouTube and we can watch them and we can learn from them. But at the same time, if we really like, you know, MacArthur, if we really like Sproul, and we sort of devote ourselves to that, what begins to happen? Their, their priorities tend to become our own, again, for good or for ill. But we see that. We see it in dating relationships, right? You try to find out as much as you can about this person, about their interests, their hobbies, and you try to show an interest in it. You try to make those kind of your own interests, your own hobbies. So we see that. We see it also... Uh, in sanctification, if we set our affections upon Christ, his desires start to become our desires. His priorities become our priorities, his attitude becomes our attitude, and his love for others becomes our love as well. And this is what would happen to the king who would acquire many wives. His affections would be pulled away from the Lord and would be set upon his wives. And we see that take place. Thirdly, he was supposed to stay away from wealth, rather excessive wealth. Verse 17, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And this one, I think, needs very little explanation. It's the same 
in all ages, the desire for excessive wealth, to be able to buy whatever you want, whatever you need. And so this is what the world thought of when they were picturing a king. This is what they valued. It, one who is strong, wealthy, surrounded by women, and able to make alliances with powerful nations. And if you think about it, it doesn't seem like a whole lot has changed in the last two and a half thousand years. Those things that were valued then are still valued today. But what is the common thread through each of these limitations? Why were they not allowed to look to these things? They all, every single one of them, turn the king from trusting in the Lord alone to relying on the things of the world. Notice Isaiah 31.1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. The same can be said for wealth. If you have enough money, then who needs God? Or the women. If you've got enough powerful alliances, you can call on any one of these nations for help. When you have someone coming up from your west, go and contact your ally from the east and say, come up and do battle with me. Same thing for... Um, for the pleasure of having all these multiple wives. But all of this is worldly wisdom. Because think about it, right? It's only common sense that a king should be powerful and wealthy. But that is not what Israel was supposed to value in a king. And it's not what you and I should value today either. But it brings up the question then, if those things should not characterize the king, what positive traits should characterize a king of Israel? What should characterize any leader? What should characterize you and I as believers? And that brings us to our fourth statement about the kingship of Israel. The kingship of Israel had responsibilities. And you might expect a list of duties concerning how the king was to govern, how he was to raise taxes, how he was to uh, enact certain policies, or how he would go about making war, or all those kind of kingly things that we think of. But that's not what's recorded. Instead, there is one job requirement. There is one main job description, and that is to be a holy man, to be a godly man. God doesn't care for our strength or might, our wit or wisdom, our looks or our stature. He doesn't need our strength. He's got plenty of it on his own and plenty of it to go around. What he desires is your heart. And he wanted the heart of the king. He wanted the king to be godly. And how is the king to do this? That's what God desires, but then how does he go and do that? Well, the text tells us. First, Deuteronomy 17, 18, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. He had to go through that slow, painstaking process of copying by hand the law of God. He had to focus on it. He had to meditate upon it as he was writing it. And I was just thinking, don't you think making, you know, the fortified, uh, fortifying cities or, or bringing in water from outside of town into the city 
or if you think about going out to war, like all those things should be top priorities for a king, maintaining the defense of the country and providing for the welfare and the prosperity of the people. But that's not it. God says his first task was submit him, to submit himself to the process of writing out stroke by stroke God's law. That's what's important to spend your time on, not those other things. Not that those other things aren't, aren't good, but this is his main responsibility. The second, verse 19, it shall be with him. Okay, so that first responsibility, you got to write a copy of it. But now it's not as if the king can say, all right, check that box, did that. Now it's there with the priests and I don't have to worry about it anymore. But now it must be with him. It must be his constant companion. And thirdly, also in verse 19, he shall read in it all the days of his life. This was to be his daily responsibility. Every day, he was to refresh himself anew with the power, the glory, the might, the wisdom, and the grace of God. And it wasn't to be a rare occurrence for him. He was to be a diligent student of God's laws and decrees as long as he was to live all the days of his life. But what, for what purpose? Why was he supposed to take this much meticulous time in studying God's word? What was the purpose of it? And our text gives us three purposes here. And we think, what purpose should you and I be in the word every day? We have these purposes recorded here. They all start with that. So you can kind of go and underline the that's in, in your text. But we have three purposes here. Continuing on in verse 19, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Notice that this fear or this reverence for God, this worship for God, is not produced only by reading the word. But that fear is produced by reading and obeying the commands. You learn to fear God when you take what he has said seriously enough to obey it, to put it into practice in your life, to become not a hearer of the law only, but a doer. And then notice the second purpose, 1720 that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. The reading of Scripture humbles you because when you read through the Scripture, you observe several things. You recognize that all mankind is wicked and hopeless without the mercy of God. That we are all sinful. That we are all totally depraved. That we all deserve the judgment and wrath of God. I can't look at one other hellbound sinner and say, ah, I'm so much better than you when you're a hellbound sinner. We are all utterly wicked and hopeless without the mercy of God. Secondly, there is no man who is intrinsically better than another. We're all taken from the same dust. We're all from Adam. We have no intrinsic worth more or less than one another. We're all from the same dust. And third, no matter what, all mankind doesn't matter who you are, we're all responsible to the one king, Yahweh. We are all under authority. 
And so the reading of Scripture, as we learn the things that it teaches, it humbles us. We have no worth in and of ourselves. We're no better than one another, and we're all responsible to the Lord. The third purpose that we see here is in verse 20, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. When we have a daily intake of obedience, uh, intake of and obedience to the scriptures, they keep you within the will of God and they keep you away from the power of sin. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If we go to John 17, 17, sanctify them, right? Make them holy in the truth. Your word is truth. And just for fun here, consider the opposites of these purposes. Because here's what we can say. If you do not have a daily intake of God's word, if you do not take God's word seriously, if it is not with you all the days of your life, what are you guaranteed to have? This is what will happen if you neglect the word. And we're just flipping it to the negative. You will not fear the Lord. If you are a Christian, you must be devoted to the word. You will not fear the Lord if you are not devoted to the word. Now, just because you read the word doesn't automatically mean that you will then fear the Lord. You must fear it. You must read it and obey it. And you must have the Spirit's help in that. The second one, if you do not have this, if you neglect God's word, your heart will be lifted up above your brothers. You will be arrogant. That will take on different manifestations. But if you do not recognize that you are under the Lord, if you don't recognize that you are just like everyone else, if you don't read God's word, you will be lifted up above your brothers. You will be arrogant. And then thirdly, that final negative, if you neglect God's word, you will turn aside from godliness. You will go to the right or to the left. You will not go straight on that path. If you do not take care to value and to prize God's word, not just formally, but actually in your life, and you're obeying those commands, this is what's going to happen. And frankly, that ought to frighten us considerably. That these things would be true of us. But, on the flip side, on the flip side, if the king fulfilled his responsibilities, if you and I prize God's word, right, you can expect a definite result. You can expect those purposes would be true in your life. And there would be another result. And we see this at the end of verse 20. And this leads to our final statement about the kingship of Israel. 20b. So that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. He would be blessed. 
The king would be blessed. We have different blessings than the kings of Israel. We don't have uh, God's curses and blessings promised to us in the church age. But we do have the promise for blessing as we read his word. And so where does that leave us then? Deuteronomy leaves us expecting a king who would come, who would exemplify these traits. And as we move forward in history and we get kings, Israel comes into the land, they defeat the nations and they settle in and they do look up and they do say, we want a king like the rest of the nations. And you remember, God gives them a free trial in Saul before the paid subscription for David and his descendants. And this was awful. But what, what do we see for every single king? Even the mighty David, every single one of them failed. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, how great he started off with that prayer of, give me wisdom so I can know how to lead your people. He increases his wealth, he increases his wives, and he increases his horses and chariots. By the end of his life, he is characterizing all those prohibitions And it says, his wives turned his heart away from serving the Lord. We have a perfect example of what happens if you neglect God's word in Solomon. The heights that he started off with and the depths that he ended with. They all failed. Every king failed and every human has failed. There's not a single human who has ever lived up to God's standards. But if we skip ahead, right, we see Jesus, who exemplifies perfect, perfectly the requirements here of the godly king. He feared God. He turned away from evil. He was devoted to the word of God. He was devoted to purity. He never had an unclean thought or an unclean word upon his mouth. And yet what happened to our glorious king? We know he was mocked. He was ridiculed, he was beaten, he was spat upon, and he was crucified. And all the while, it was him entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And to what end? We know the end of this in 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He has taken our place, and he calls to all who would lay down their sins, who would lay down their pride and receive him as king and savior. And he ensures forgiveness of sins to all who would believe in Christ and follow him. And so what I would encourage you today first is, Give your loyalty to this king. He is righteous. He is wonderful. He is deserving. And then follow him. These character traits here in Deuteronomy 17, we can't say, oh, I'm not a king, therefore I shouldn't have to do these laws. It's very much like the pastoral epistles where it gives the qualities for an elder. We can't say, oh, I'm not an elder, so I don't need to worry about those character traits. Those are the goal for all Christians. Elders are supposed to be examples for the flock to follow. It must be true of them so that everyone else can look to the elders and see what is a godly person. 
In the same way, the king of Israel was to be the model Israelite. He was to represent to the whole nation what it was to follow God. And therefore, they would follow the king. And what's remarkable is when that happens, when you have a good king like Josiah, the kingdom is blessed. But even Josiah fails. But Jesus does it perfectly, and he is our model. He is our example, and we follow him. And so therefore, these traits were, that, were the traits that all the faithful would pursue. And so what is most important? That you fear the Lord, that you read his word, and remain humbled before him. He wants your godliness. He wants your heart. All those other things can fall away. He's not focused on the things of the world. If he gives those things to you, great. But your responsibility and my responsibility is to be a godly person, to be a holy person who is devoted to God's word and devoted to the Lord. So let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, we realize that we fall short. Lord, we realize that we have relied upon all the things of the world rather than trusting in you. Keep us from that. Forgive us for doing that. Lord, make us a people who are devoted to your word. Make us a people who read it all the days of our life. Make us a people that in doing that we fear you. Make us a people who are humbled by you and by your word. And make us a people who turn away from evil, who remain on the path of your commandments, for therein do we delight. You have given us commands in your word for our good, for our benefit. May we not bear these grudgingly, for they are not burdensome, but they are good, just as you are good. So Lord, we lift up this time to you. We pray that your spirit would take your word, make it effective in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.